Oh, Lord, our God, we praise you. Oh, Lord, our God, we worship you. We lift up your name. We bow before you, Lord, in humility. We bow before you, Lord, recognizing you are El Shaddai, God Almighty. We praise and worship you because there is no other. There is none like you. There is no savior but you, Yahweh, Yeshua, Holy Spirit, you are God. We are beneath your authority now in this place. And may our worship be a blessing, Lord, to your heart. May it be pleasing in your sight. And may we as your people be lifted up and encouraged at your very presence, the presence of the Lord, our God. Father, I pray for any friends, any visitors, any family who may not know you, who may not be connected to you, who may not have given their lives to you, that they will hear something today to help them recognize your deep love for them and the wonderful opportunity that is before them. Thank you for this time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 18, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up there. Genesis 18. Exactly. (laughs) Genesis 18. This is really cool, so pay attention. Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. Then the men rose up from there, looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. He spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. 
And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. And then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry <laughs> if I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. As soon as he finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. Oh, Lord, give us understanding of this remarkable conversation. And I pray like Abraham, you would teach us to draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be familiar with the passage. Abraham lawyering God, trying to get him to lower the number of people to try to save the city of Sodom. But perhaps you haven't heard it quite like this. I haven't seen it this way myself. This is a moment that declares, that expresses in remarkable terms friendship. Friendship. Seneca said one of the most beautiful qualities of true friendship is to understand and to be understood. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, the glory of friendship is not the outstretched hand, it's not the kindly smile, nor the joy of companionship. It is the spiritual inspiration that comes to one when you discover someone else believes in you and is willing to trust you with a friendship. Maybe another way to put it or to describe it is true friendship is when you walk into a home and your Wi-Fi connects automatically. <laughs> it's a friend. Or it's, it's saying, I love my computer because all my friends live there. <laughs> or one that I heard, um, a friend will help you move. A best friend will help you move a body. I don't know that that's appropriate. <laughs> You know what, what's interesting to me is I think the Jewish people have a bead on friendship perhaps a little better than we do. You see, we, we think of the word friend, and I was even talking to Jim about this a few minutes ago. It's, it's hard to comprehend God as friend. Friendship with God, why? Because usually when we toss out the word friendship, it's, it's light. It's not like marriage, right? Although I hope it is. But it's a lighter view of relationship a lot of times in the Western world, and yet to the Hebrew mind, you know what the word is for friend in the Hebrew scriptures? Ahav. You look shocked. Ahav, it's the same word that is translated love, lover, beloved. When God says to Abraham in Genesis 22, take your son, your only son, whom you love, the word is ahav. Same word is used in Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all time. An achav loves at all time. A love loves at all time. And a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 18, 24, the word is used again. A man of too many achav, too many friends, comes to ruin. The idea there is people pleasers and politicians. <laughs> too many friends. But there is a friend, a love, who sticks closer than a brother. Or Proverbs 27, verse six, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Friendship to the Hebrew mind is love, achav. Now, without ever using the word, what we discover here in the latter part of Genesis 18 is a very personal encounter between two friends. The level of friendship between Abraham and God reaches somewhat of an apex in these few verses. 
Which is why I think later on, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7 says, Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, your Ahav, forever? Or Isaiah 41, verse 8, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, are the descendant of Abraham, my friend, my love. James 2.23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. He was called the love of God. Friendship. Now, I keep repeating, specifically those three verses about Abraham, the friend of God. We've heard these now several times since we began talking about Abraham. And the reason is there was no man-to-God relationship like this. I mean, look back in ancient writings. Just look back in the scriptures themselves. We see no one who has the level of relationship at this point that Abraham has. And it was so radical in that time, so different. You see, the pagan gods, they represented the worst of humanity. Think about that. They're demanding, selfish, Power-hungry, irrational, amoral, immoral, devious, and capricious. Those are pretty much the way the world views gods with little g's. Pagan gods, mythological gods, they, they, they have the human aspect to them that is not so pretty. The best people could hope to do was to appease these gods, if not try to piggyback on their false powers or depravity. But then along comes Abraham, and we recognize in this relationship that the God of Abraham actually cares. In fact, cares more for how we care for each other, it seems, even than how people relate to him. He's always looking at how we love, how we are a friend one to another. So this friendship relationship between God and Abraham, it's radically different completely opposed to the human-to-God relationships of the heathen, and yet that wasn't enough. God took it further. He took a step I think nobody expected. All these pre-incarnate visions of God, these visitations, ultimately give way to God with us. Emmanuel. So we won't just have the vicarious experience of Abraham and God, that friendship, if you will, but we began to see God in Christ. God in Jesus, he, he looked on the paralyzed man. The paralyzed man whose friends had just lowered him on a pallet through the roof. That sounds like something my friends would do. <laughs> and Jesus looked on him and seeing their faith, Luke 5, 20, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Matthew eleven nineteen. 19, and Luke 7, 34, he was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And he responded to this saying, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. In other words, of course I'm a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus even called the multitudes his friends. Luke 12, 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. And Jesus also had very close personal friends as well. John eleven eleven, he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. 
And we begin to see in Jesus, in his relationships, very human relationships, the measure of a friend. He even looked into the eyes of Judas in Gethsemane and said, Matthew 26, 50, friend, do what you have come for. That to me is a remarkable statement, that Jesus could look into the eyes of betrayal and still say, friend. You know, we know that Judas wasn't just a pawn in the game. He truly was loved and trusted by Jesus. Oh, Jesus wasn't fooled. He, he knew what was going on. But he treated Judas as he treated all of the 12. He treated him as a friend. He loved him as a friend, and he loved him to the end. Well, how do we know that? Psalm 41, verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So it begs the question, why would God do this? Why would God put himself into such a risky relationship as friendship? You ever felt that way? You ever feel like maybe I just don't want to make friends or be a friend because there's risk involved? I've been hurt too many times. If I just hang back, if I don't engage, if I keep my feelings close to the vest, then I'll be okay. I won't get hurt. That's the way to do it. Turn over to John chapter 15 in your Bibles. John 15 for a moment. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Fourth book of the New Testament. And in John 15, Jesus is speaking to his closest friends as Judas has already left the building to betray him, and this is on Jesus' heart, it's on Jesus' mind. He knows exactly what's going on, and yet to the 11 still gathered there, Jesus pours out, speaks of the deepest of love and the truest of friendship. In fact, he says in John chapter 15, verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you, and I would add, just as he is being betrayed by a friend. But Jesus goes on in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of true friendship. Again, the measure of a friend, what it means to be a friend of God. So back to Genesis 18. I want you to keep that in mind because in this Chapter, roughly three short months after the last visitation to Abraham, he's back, God is back, and he's visiting his friend once again. If you note at the very beginning of chapter 18, and I just want to bring you up to speed if you weren't here Wednesday, it says, the Lord appeared to him, that is Yahweh, appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing there opposite him, 
And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth, and he said, my Adonai, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. This time, the visible God, note that, the visible God, see, God is not to be seen by anyone. Anyone who looks on God dies, but Yahweh's here. He's the visible God. I believe this is Jesus. And he's in the company this time of of two angels because the angels have come along with him to be sent on a further mission. But the Lord himself returns in chapter 18. We read chapter 17 of that that conversation and, and, and the Lord speaking with Abraham. Well, this is three months later and he's back again. Why? So Sarah can hear with her own ears that she can hear for herself that she's going to bear a son. Why? Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. And so the Lord makes sure that Sarah hears what I don't believe she heard in chapter 17. Abraham heard, but Sarah not yet. And so in 18, she gets to hear. And Hebrews eleven eleven tells us, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So God comes back to speak with Abraham right outside the tent, even asking, where's Sarah? She's in the tent. Good, she can hear me. And he begins to repeat again that this is going to happen. You're gonna have a son nine months from now. And Sarah hears. She laughs, but she believes. But there's another reason this visit occurs Because in it, oh, I know what you're saying. You're saying, yeah, because they're getting ready to blow away Sodom and Gomorrah. No. There's another reason the visit occurs. In this visit, we get a revelation of friendship with God. We get to see what it looks like. We see it played out. First, note how God expresses his friendship with Abraham, verse 16. Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Note this if you are a note taker. Full disclosure. Full disclosure. This is what friends do. Full disclosure. There's no hiding anything. Shall I hide this from Abraham? God is thinking to himself, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna see Sodom and Gomorrah, and we're gonna lay waste to these cities and the cities round about. Do I want Abraham to find this out after the fact? Or do I tell him? Shall I hide it from him? He's my friend. How many of us want our friends to find out things we're doing later? You know, around the corner. Come and tell me now. One of the hallmarks of true friendship is when we take someone into our confidence and we share everything that's going on in our lives. Again, John 15, 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Why? For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you, Jesus says. That's friendship. We see God doing this with Abraham right here. In fact, the reason He's given us his word even today. The reason the Lord pours out his spirit is so that we might have, as his friends, his beloved, full disclosure. Do you realize that you, friend of God, have been given full disclosure? That there's nothing he is keeping from you or desires to hold back from you? 
It's why the word is in your lap this morning. Full disclosure. Here's the whole thing. From beginning to utter end, here's the whole thing. From Genesis to Revelation, here it is, my friends. I want you to know everything that I'm going to do, everything that I've done, everything that I'm doing right now. Full disclosure. John chapter 17, you can turn there or just listen, just a couple of verses out of it. Jesus, on that same night that he described friendship, now is in prayer to the Lord, and in John 17, verse eight, he says, now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they understood, they received them, they truly understood that I came forth from you and that they believed that you sent me. I told him everything, Lord, full disclosure. But you might think, well, then why is he not answering me? Full disclosure, then why isn't he telling me what's happening in my life? If full disclosure is a thing with the friendship of God, then why don't I know what's going on here? Why is this mess happening, and I've been asking, and he's not telling me? What kind of friend is that? Is it possible that he's just not answering the way you want him to? He's not saying it. Well, actually, he is. I just don't like it. Okay, fair enough. Oftentimes, I have friends tell me things I just don't like. Not thrilled about Rachel leaving. Don't like it. No, I'm sorry. She's not telling me what's really going on. She's going to go work with Campus Christian Fellowship. I'm not buying it. There's something else here, something seedy, something under the surface. She's not sharing. I just don't like the answer. We've all had friends. <laughs> we've all been friends who just wanted something. And we've had friends who just wanted something from us but didn't necessarily want us. See, understand that disclosing every little thing he's doing isn't the deal. Friendship with God means fully disclosing himself. Full disclosure in a friendship is full self-disclosure. And that's what the Lord does. There are things out ahead of us. You know the Bible says his word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path, so that's not very far out. I don't know what's gonna happen in my life tomorrow or the next day or next week, but you know what I know? You know what I have full disclosure on? who God is. I know my friend, and I know my friend's gonna be there. I know my beloved will be there tomorrow or the next day or the next week. So that whatever he's doing or involved in, the full disclosure I need, I desire, we seek most is full self-disclosure, which is exactly what he revealed through Jesus. John 17, 25 Oh, righteous Father, Jesus went on, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Full self-disclosure. Because the Lord doesn't have to explain himself to you, and yet he explains himself to you. He, he shares who he is, full self-disclosure. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him, 
Full self-disclosure, John 1, 18. And honestly, there's far more peace in knowing God than in trying to figure out what God is doing. Knowing who he is rather than why he's doing what he's doing. And I'm coming to this more and more at this point in my life, late in the game, recognizing it's not knowing everything, it's just knowing him. It's understanding his nature and his character, it's how he discloses himself. And I love that about the Lord. And so, continuing on, watch the reason behind the Lord's disclosure to Abraham, verse 18. He continues to say, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. And in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him, stop there, note this, the word there is known. I have known him. I'm gonna disclose this to him because I know Abraham. And he knows me. This is a relationship we're in. I have known him, I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Second thing to note about God, not only does friendship with God involve self-disclosure, full self-disclosure, but secondly, friendship with God invites a following. Invites a following. You see, to know the Lord is to keep the way of the Lord. And to know the Lord better is to follow him. That is, as I go the way of the Lord, I know the Lord. And because I know the Lord, I will go the way of the Lord. The Lord says, Abraham is going my way. Multitudes will come from him. Nations will come from him. Kings will come from him. All the earth will be blessed through him, and he's going my way, and that's the way I want you to go. To know him is to follow him, and to follow him is to know him, and God seems to put this relationship, this relationship between himself and Abraham, he sets it as a pace setter for all relationships that will follow. That's why this is so important to understand the life of Abraham, not just his histories and where he lived and what he did, but these interactions, these seven or eight interactions that he has with the Lord define for us this following faithful relationship. God says, I'm gonna bless him and the world will be blessed through him and the nation Israel will come from him among other nations. And so I want them to see I've got to disclose to him. This relationship is vital for all the others that will follow after. Isaiah 51 verse one describes this. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. When he was one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. In other words, follow the pattern of my relationship with Abraham. Seek to have that kind of friendship with me that Abraham has with me. Paul would later put it this way, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 11, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. If I'm following him, follow me, as long as I'm following him. And what we end up is this long line of followers all going the way of the Lord, all in this friendship, this beloved relationship with the Lord. God initiates this 
intimate interchange with Abraham so that I believe his children, his household, his nation, and all the nations of the earth might come along on the way of the Lord. Follow, follow along. And what is that way? Note this in verse 19. Those coming after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing two things, righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice. Now, don't get drowsy with the church lingo here. You ever do that? You hear words that we hear a lot in Bible study or in church like righteousness, and we just kind of go click. It's kind of shut off, shut down. Oh, justice, yeah, ping. We come back when something, you know, curious or interesting, but those, you know, those, we all know what that means. We know what those are. Listen, this is the first time out of 154 times in the Hebrew scriptures alone that righteousness and justice are coupled, put together. This is highly significant. The last time we see righteousness and justice in the same place is Zephaniah chapter three, verse five. The Lord is righteous within Jerusalem. He will do no injustice. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He does not fail. In other words, God is righteous, therefore he is just. This is important because if we're gonna be followers in this friend relationship with God, this friendship that invites a following, then we need to understand if we're gonna go the way of the Lord, that way is righteousness and justice. That's incumbent upon us now to follow, to do righteousness and justice. What does that mean? Righteousness is internal. Justice is external. Righteousness is of the heart. Justice is of the hands. Righteousness is being right with God at the deepest of levels at heart, it's no games, no pretense, no religiosity. It's real relationship. It's the true measure of a friend. The kind of friendship that is in full disclosure, that follows after, that desires to be genuine and authentic and real, that's righteousness, right with God. Justice flows as the outward behavior of someone who is righteous, of someone who is right with God. If you're right with God, justice is what you're gonna do. Amos chapter five, verse 24 says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Think about that. Righteousness is the stream in which the waters of justice flow. Righteousness is the heart. Justice is the hands. By the way, and I have to note this because Sodom and Gomorrah is coming up. We'll be looking at that on Wednesday night. But some have tried to say that the sin of Sodom wasn't perversion, wasn't sexual immorality. That the real sin of Sodom was they didn't care for the poor. Okay, now I've actually heard that sermon preached. And it comes from the whole mentality of the social gospel. And you know what, being social with the gospel is not a bad thing. That's the justice side. But see, the Lord calls us to righteousness and justice, to heart and hand. To, to thought life and behavior, to the spirit man as well as to the natural man. God wants it all. Righteousness and justice together. So where does this concept come from that Sodom was judged because they didn't care for the poor? Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease 
but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me, therefore I removed them when I saw. This is what that argument fails to understand. There was no justice, that is caring for the poor, making sure the needs of the needy were met. There was no justice in Sodom and Gomorrah because there was no righteousness. So the sin, the sexual perversion, all that, that was part and parcel of the judgment, but that was going on along with the lack of care for the poor, along with the lack of justice, because there was no righteousness. Where there is no righteousness, justice fails every time. Look at American culture today. The further America strays from righteousness, that is being right with God, the more injustice you will see. And that's why Jesus says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of many will grow cold. The world will lose its sense of right and wrong and justice. God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, truly, because they're in full-blown rebellion to his righteousness. They're in rebellion to his nature. You know why sin is so personal to God? You know why it matters so much to him, why he can't just turn a blind eye to it? It's personal to the Lord because it's an affront to who he is. It's a rebellion to the person of God. It's turning one's back against everything God has presented of himself to this world, and David understood that. David in Psalm 51 verse four said, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless or righteous when you judge. Righteousness and justice. I sinned against you. Now I've read the story of Bathsheba. He sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against her husband. He sinned against the people of Israel. He sinned against his other wives. He sinned against his family. He lied to those around him. He sinned against all kinds of people. And yet David rightly says, I sinned against you only, Lord. Because the sin against the Lord is all-encompassing. It is a sin against his righteousness. And so, yeah, yeah, truly, Sodom and Gomorrah lacked justice, lacked a social conscience. Why? Because they were so sickly sinful and unrighteous. And so it's both. Full-blown rebellion against the very nature of God. You know, you don't do the right thing just because it's the right thing to do. I heard that in school, even as a kid growing up. Do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Well, if that's your motivation for doing the right thing, it will fail. Because after a while, doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do is boring. It's the right thing to do? Well, maybe it's right for you. I have what's right for me. Well, that's culture today. There's your right and there's my right. There's your truth and there's my truth. And our two truths may not line up, so I'm gonna do what's right for me. And that's why we see righteousness failing. That will always break down. But justice, true justice, it flows in and from and by righteousness, which is being right with God, and we recognize this is the way of the Lord. This is the following we're talking about. So it's not just trailing on after a friend who's going somewhere. No, the friendship following that we see God presenting to Abraham and God saying, this is what my friend will do. He'll follow me. They're gonna follow him as he follows me. 
This following, it requires one to be right with God and then to act in that righteousness through justice. Both are the way of the Lord. Now watch this, verse 20. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. And the word outcry here is a wordplay on righteousness. It's set against righteousness. Righteousness in the Hebrew is sedekah. Outcry in the Hebrew is zeekah. You've got sedekah and zeekah. My righteousness and the outcry of their sin. God sets them in opposition to each other. The outcry of sin against his righteousness because sin is opposition to his righteousness. Sedekah. Zeekah. The outcry of their sin. Was it that their was the outcry the injustice because of the sin, or was the outcry the very sin itself? I, I tend to lean toward it's the sin itself that's shouting and crying and clamoring. But either way, God hears, and it is in opposition to his own righteousness. Verse 21, I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Wait a minute. Doesn't he already know? I'm gonna go down and see if this is true. Aren't you the Lord? Isn't he omniscient? Wouldn't he know? Isn't that why you came down in the first place, Lord, that you are fully aware? Listen, in friendship, the Lord offers full self-disclosure, he invites following, and he reveals his fairness. He reveals his fairness as he's about to do with Abraham in this relationship, that when God judges, he does so based on a full and fair investigation and accounting of all the facts. He won't judge before the facts are fully known. Monica Adelot came up to me on Wednesday, and she goes, Pastor Rick, if God flooded the world before, isn't it worse now? What's going on here? I love the question, Monica. It was a great question. When you look around at the world in which we live and you consider the world in which Noah lived, these are the days of Noah. Why? I, granted, the Lord said he's not gonna flood the world and, and Monica was on that. She said, I know, I know the rainbow and he said he's not gonna flood the world, but why hasn't he judged the world? Why are we still here? Isn't sin worth judging right now? And the single word answer to Monica's question is fairness. Fairness. God is waiting for sin to fill up. Waiting for all the facts and evidence to be in. He knows, but do we? Does the world fully comprehend its depravity just yet? He knows it is worth judging. He's waiting. It's kind of like Genesis 15, 16, where he said to Abraham in the fourth generation, Abraham's people will return here to the promised land for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It's not yet filled up. Remember we talked about that? What an interesting comment that God's waiting on the Amorites to fully sin, to sin to the fullest measure. And what that means is with the Amorites as with the world today, God is allowing the world to run its course. 
He is, to use a phrase we've used around here quite a bit, he's letting the world come to the end of itself. Fill up to the full measure of your sin. And God will not bring his wrath until the sin of the world has completely filled up. Monica, that's why he hasn't come yet. Because the sin of the world isn't completely full. I think we're close. I mean, from my perspective, I think it's bubbling over. But true friendship with God offers full self-disclosure, invites following, and reveals that he is completely fair. So he's gonna go all the way to Sodom so that every fact is established. People say, how could he destroy a city? Well, he didn't until every fact was established. And the rest of the conversation even goes a long way to establishing that reality. The Lord showing his friendship to Abram through full disclosure, following, and fairness. What about Abraham? See, now, this is the other thing. Part of the reason I believe this interplay is before us is to give us the human angle. Okay, we see how God presents himself as beloved, as friend. What about us? What does that look like from our perspective? How does friendship with God look from this side of the relationship? Verse 22. And then the men turned away from there, that is the two angels, and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And Moses, in writing this, is absolutely clear. Once again, he uses the term Yahweh. Verse 22, the Lord is Yahweh. Verse one of chapter 18 begins, and Yahweh appeared to him. So this is God, no question. Before Abraham comes to him, and it says Abraham was still standing before the Lord, and verse 23, Abraham came near. Pause there just for a second. This is a side note. But the phrase came near speaks of worship. What Abraham is doing is drawing near to the Lord in a worshipful posture, Abraham came near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? It's important to know that he's in worshipful posture because what he's about to say is pretty stunning. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Verse 24, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, he repeats. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And that is one of the most famous verses in scripture. Shall not the judge of all the earth Deal justly. But before that famous verse, there are two lines that are so shocking, especially that Abraham repeats it, far be it from you. You know what that is in the Hebrew? What that really sounds like? Chalakalaha, <laughs> or something like that. Chalilalacha. Chalilalacha. I'm not Hebrew, I'm doing my best. But if you were listening in, you would have heard him say, two times. Meaning, translated, how dare you do such a thing? How dare you? If I was standing by Abraham in that moment, I would have been slowly moving away. Are you, how, how dare you say that to God, Abraham? Oh my goodness. Note this, Abraham's friendship with God is fearless. And he's comfortable being so. 
He knows the Lord well enough at this point that he can actually say, how dare you do such a thing? How dare you do such a thing? My friends, this is unique in all the scriptures. You're not gonna find anyone else, even in the Bible, speak to anyone in that way. And you might say, well, doesn't Peter in Matthew 16, I'm pretty sure I heard him say, uh, far be it from you or something like that to Jesus, didn't he? Yeah, Matthew 16, verse 22, God forbid it, Lord, says Peter. Actually, what Peter said is, the Lord be merciful to you. It's a very different thing. Abraham blurts right here, far be it from you, how dare you do such a thing. Hey, man, no one talks to El Shaddai like that. This is God Almighty. Jeremiah perhaps gets a little bit close. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1 Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prosper? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? And so Jeremiah is boldly coming before the Lord and questioning why all the injustice. I don't understand what's going on. But he's asking God for understanding why the unjust are not being judged Abraham is fairly saying, directly saying, how dare you not judge righteously? You're gonna blow up Sodom? You're gonna destroy Gomorrah? Now, understand that Abraham does fear God. In fact, he fell on his face before him back in chapter 17, verse three, but he's bold in this relationship. Why? Because he knows the character of God. Because he understands that God Almighty, El Shaddai, is always righteous. Always righteous. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? It's a fearless statement. And what Abraham just said, please note this, jot this down, this is huge to me. What he literally just said is, shall not the judge of all the earth deal after his own manner. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal by his own nature? Hey, you are the judge of all the earth. You will deal justly. Why? Because he's righteous. Righteousness, justice. And Abraham's right. This is a sound argument, by the way, that God does not dispute. The Lord is allowing Abraham to comprehend now the weight of his nature and Abraham is, wow, he's bold, he's fearless, but he's right. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal after his own manner? By the way, I gotta ask you a question. If you've been dialed into the trial, if you will, in the Senate this last week. Question, what do the names Schiff, Nadler, and Dershowitz have in common? <laughs> they are all three Jewish lawyers. Schiff, Nadler, and Dershowitz are all three Jewish lawyers. Alan Dershowitz, who interestingly is liberal and yet is arguing on the side of the president, Alan Dershowitz actually wrote a book about famous Jewish lawyers in history. You can pick it up on Amazon. I love the title of it, and this is why I'm mentioning it. It's called Abraham, the World's First and Certainly Not Last Jewish Lawyer. And you see the mindset in here of a Jewish lawyer with Abraham and the way he pleads the case before the Lord. He's not unlike the Jewish son who went to his father and said, hey, 
dad, can I borrow 50 bucks? And his dad said, 40 bucks, what do you want 20 bucks for? <laughs> and if I have offended any Jewish friends, forgive me. <laughs> Abraham, the first and certainly not last Jewish lawyer. But listen, listen, Abraham is not playing the lawyer here. He is the friend. He's the friend. He's approaching God. He's speaking the things he's thinking, speaking, not because he's pleading a case, but because he's pleading the character of God. He's saying, Lord, I know you. It doesn't make sense that you would do this. Help me understand. My friends, if life seems at all unfair to you, God cannot be. Let me say that again. If life seems unfair, God cannot be unfair. You might not understand what's happening, and it may seem unjust, but all those who know him will one day shout out all together, Revelation 19 verse one, with a loud voice of a great multitude, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. And I love that passage, I told you recently, because that's us. That is you praising God in heaven, in future days, quoted in the Bible. I like to tell people that, you know, I'm quoted in scripture. Hallelujah, his judgments are true and righteous. Verse 26, so the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. He just confirms Abraham's fearless comments. Second thing to note about Abraham's friendship, it is also fearful, that is humble. Verse 27 Abraham replied, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am dust and ashes. I'm dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. I love that he doesn't say, suppose there are 45 righteous. Like a good lawyer, he says, suppose they're just lacking five. Five less people. <laughs> Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45. God calls him on it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. He said, I will not do it on account of the 40. He said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak. Notice how much more now he's, he's really toned down his rhetoric. Abraham comes to his friend fearlessly, but now humbly, oh, may the Lord not be angry and so I shall speak. Suppose there are 30 found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. I think God at this point is tickled. <laughs> and he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. See, he's, he's, he's a little more tenuous. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. And then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. <laughs> and I shall speak only this once while you've spoken much more than just this once, bro. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. He says, I am dust and ashes. Lord, okay, I just jumped out there fearlessly. Let me back it up. I am just dust, dust and ashes. I am afar va'afir. Afar va'afir. Another word play, meaning in the Hebrew, I'm nothing. Lord, I am nothing next to you. 
I've taken this upon myself, not because I'm anything, Lord, but because I know you. And I love this in their friendship is Abraham is pleading God's character. I know you. This is, this is not like you. I don't understand. I'm just dust and ashes. But I know you, Lord. I'm reminded of Psalm 113, verse 7. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. So Abraham comes at God at first fearlessly, but then fearfully. And number three, with Abraham, his friendship is fervent. It's fervent, which is why he keeps going and going. He stays at it with the Lord. He goes from 50 to 45 to 30 to 20 to 10 because he's fervent in in pleading the character of the Lord to the Lord in this beloved friendship. Why does he stop at 10? Ever wonder that? Why 10? Why not go for it? You know, keep going. How about nine? Well, for nine. How about eight? Well, for eight. Seven? Would you do it for seven? How about six? I'm wondering about five myself. Four, three, two, one. How about just one? If you find one, you're gonna, you're gonna wipe out one, right? See, that would be this idiot. But Abraham stops at 10. Why? Because Abraham's friendship with God sees his family. He sees his family. Why does he plead for Sodom at all? (laughs) He knows the local news. I mean, Abraham is aware of what's going on in Sodom. Everybody would have been. You don't have Sodom and Gomorrah, the two most sin-sick cities in the entire world at that time, and people don't know about it. If I mention San Francisco, what do you think? (laughs) So he's pleading for Sodom, but why? Because his nephew Lot lives there. Because Lot's there. And listen, get this, according to chapter 19, verse 8, 12, and 14, Lot's household includes Lot, his wife, two sons, two married daughters, two sons-in-law, his two single virgin daughters, altogether the family numbered 10. That's why he brings it all the way down to 10, and he cannot go any less, because if he goes less, then he is condemning his family. Oh, Lord, for 10 righteous people, Lot's family. I mean, they gotta be righteous, right? They're family. They gotta be okay before the Lord, right? So Abraham felt safe stopping there. If you know the story, sadly, the reality is only four would leave Sodom. Only three made it out alive. Only one is ever called righteous, and that's Lot himself. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, if he rescued righteous Lot, opposed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. You hear that? Their, lawless de- their injustice, his righteousness, his righteous soul was tormented. That's what happens when you have a righteousness with God. You get tormented by the injustice in the world around you. Makes you want to act on it. But 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 tells us that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. He's got it. If you feel your righteous soul tormented, 
He's got it. If you see the injustice and you feel like there's nothing you can do about it, though you may try, God has it. He will be just. The judge of all the earth will deal justly. He's gonna bring it all to a right conclusion. But understand, my friends, that righteousness is not measured by being numbered in a household. It's Lot and his family, 10 righteous people. You'll spare the city for 10 righteous, right? I mean, they're part of the family of Abraham. They've gotta be righteous, right? God says in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse four, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine, and the soul who sins will die. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Verse 23 of Ezekiel 18. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? Rather than that, he should turn from his ways and live. There's the heart of the father. That's the beloved heart of God. And in Ezekiel 18, verse 32, God says, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Abraham's friendship with God sees his family, cares for his family, but we need to understand that it doesn't matter if your father or uncle or auntie or sister or brother or even your mama is a friend of God. That's not the point. Question is, are you? Are you a friend of God? Are you in that friendship relationship, that beloved, deep, ahav relationship with the Lord? Abraham, as James told us, was called the friend of God. You know what James also said? James chapter four, verse four, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And again, Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. <laughs> Took me a long time to catch up on that one. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Oh, great, let's do all the things you wanna do. <laughs> if I can do what you command, oh, then I'm your friend. Oh, what kind of friend is that? If you do what I want, Wait a minute, wait a minute. What had Jesus just commanded? John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You're my friends if you do what I command you. I command you to love each other. Because our relationships, one with another, matter as much to God as our relationship with him. Oh, I'm a friend of God. Are you a friend of others? I'm beloved of God. Are you beloved? And do you consider others beloved? That's the measure of your relationship with him. You can't say you love God and hate your brother. Now see, true friendship, deep friendship, real friendship is defined in that greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Back in Genesis 18, final question, who started the conversation? Verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? 
And now he is the one who ends the conversation. Verse 33, as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. You see, the truth is God wasn't being lawyered by Abraham at all. He was just talking it out for the love of a friend and for the love of his friends. Let's pray together. Holy Father, to be called a friend of God, to be invited into that kind of relationship with you is a remarkable thing because, Lord, you are remarkable. That you invite those of us who are not righteous by nature to enter into righteous relationships with you, right, true, good relationships of authenticity and integrity with you, that, that invitation is, is yet overwhelming for some of us. And if we come at it, Lord, with that superficial view of friendship, we miss it. No, we come to you this morning recognizing that you invite us into the apex of relationship, the God-to-person relationship, the creator-to-created, God Almighty, to those of us who are dust and ashes, that you would lift us up into a relationship with you is the most amazing thing that I have ever known. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you have done everything necessary to make us righteous that we might walk with you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that righteousness would affect us in our justice that as our hearts go with you, so our hands would work in this world. That as our friendship with you is true and deep and real and blood-bought, so our friendship with each other and our friendship, our relationships with people would be relationships that reflect the nature and character of our dearest and deepest friend, our God and our Father, our Lord and our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for this relationship. In Jesus' name, amen.